0: Welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuis, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, episode 14, Integral Recovery in the Space. Plural Recovery and the Art of Healing Relationships with Colleen Kelly.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. This is the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Very happy to have you here. John Dupuis is with us today, founder of Integral Recovery. Doug Prater, uh, very talented in many ways, a, a really important contributor to our conversation. I'm Bob Weathers. Very happy to have you with us. And we have a guest with us today Colleen Kelly. Kelly, we'll be introducing Kelly in just a moment, but I want to introduce and set up our conversation. In previous uh, podcasts, we've discussed the aqua model of uh, uh, integral theory based on Ken Wilber's work. John, you've elaborated on that and uh, recommend highly John's book on integral recovery as, as the bible in the field for this and I, John, you addressed in that book, I actually reviewed it again this last week. This we section. just said. Uh, so in the context of integral recovery and the four quadrants, uh, um, there's there's a lot of focus in the uh, recovery field on the upper right-hand quadrant, looking at the, the biology of addiction. In fact, that's been a lot of the focus of my work, looking at addiction in the brain and uh, helping people to deal with the upper left-hand quadrant which is the interiority around shame and uh, cultural stigma. Our previous podcast addressed forgiveness and a lot of my work around self-forgiveness is placing it in the context of looking at uh, 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 having a good understanding of the science of addiction can actually help us deal with our interior states such as shame and move through them uh, towards successful recovery. Uh, there's also uh, much of the focus on the national international stages in the lower right-hand quadrant, which is looking at the social, systemic, economic, and other factors that certainly feed and affect uh, uh, addiction on a societal level, filtering right down to the individual. But what we're focusing on today is the lower left-hand quadrant, which is really the dimension of the collective uh, interior, or to put it in English, it, it would be working on the relational domain, Work on the relational domain. And Colleen, this is your expertise. We're really grateful to have you here with us. Colleen is a marriage and family therapist who uh, works uh, a great deal each week. I can vouch for this. Colleen is my life partner, and and uh, we we share notes each week. She works uh, in several different clinical settings, and a good bit of her work is working with couples and families in and around addictions of uh, issues of addiction and so I think she's uniquely qualified uh, to address the lower left-hand quadrant. And we've mentioned it here before and I'll mention it again right now. Colleen and I are right now, uh, right in the middle of uh, completing a two-book series, a two-volume series that we're calling Plural Recovery. It's really lower left-hand quadrant-focused work. The first, uh, book is uh, uh, focusing on issues of shame and stigma. Shame is an interpersonal phenomenon, and as I mentioned earlier, bringing in the upper right-hand quadrant to inform that, talking about addiction in the brain, but how do you inform not only the addict in recovery, but his or her loved ones about, uh, about what's going on with addiction and what early recovery looks like. So that's the first volume. The second volume will be focusing on uh, among other things, rupture, uh, ruptures in relationships that follow on addiction and how to go about repairing those ruptures. And so with that as kind of a, a backdrop, I want to introduce Colleen. We have a, a few questions that we'll work through. I'll be in dialogue with her along with Hugh, John, and Doug and uh, really invite everybody's attention for the next uh, bit of time, okay? So Colleen, first of all, if I can just ask you, why, why address relationships in recovery to begin with? Any thoughts about that?
2: Uh, yeah, I I think that, you know, anybody who works in the field of recovery knows that generally speaking, most people, maybe, maybe if not all people who come in uh, addressing their addiction and getting into recovery, they're going to have difficulties in their close relationship. And um, and so we we find that they come in with difficulties and it's kind of hard to know unless you sort of do an assessment. And get a little bit of their background, whether this was kind of a a pre-morbid issue, like there were maybe mental health issues, maybe there was difficulties in their upbringing, maybe there was trauma in their life, and that those factors could actually lead them towards addiction or make them susceptible to addiction. But then you also have when they got addicted, like what time of their life they got addicted. was early on, and they weren't able to establish a lot of healthy, robust relationships. They don't even know what that looks Mm -hmm. like. Um, so you have kind of what did they look like before they became addicted? When did they become addicted? And generally speaking, you're going to be dealing with relationship issues in the certainly in the early stages of recovery. Um, and then I think there's a real maybe a reason to work on your your relationships long term when you are in recovery. Um, there's just so much research out there that talks about what a healthy relationship can contribute to mm. one's well being. And um, I'd be happy to talk about that a little bit. I don't know if that would be of interest. No, that would
3: be a, a big interest.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, let me say a word yeah. about that. Sure. And, and I want to invite you others as, uh, to discuss this as well. I'm aware that, in fact, it's come up in our, our Journal of Integral Recovery uh, Facebook uh, posts in the last couple of weeks is that there's a lot of focus, and understandably, on individual accountability for my recovery, for our recovery. And so there's a lot of focus on, uh, well, in our conversations, on everything from building a a strong, resilient body, in terms of really attending to to our physical health, um, as well as... Reading good literature and cultivating our minds, working on our shadow through interior practice. We just, in our last session, talked about forgiveness practice that can be done completely alone. Um, And all the spiritual practices that that we discuss, including uh, working with uh, I-awake technology to really enhance and deepen meditation practice and so on. Almost all of that discussion is on an individual level. That would be more upper left-hand and maybe upper right-hand quadrant. Issues. And so we drop down into the lower uh, the lower, qua- the lower quadrants, the collective or plural uh, quadrants, there may be less literature on that. and yet I think what Colleen is saying is that, that uh, our relational context may be as instrumental to our recovery as our commitment to our individual work and in the spirit of integral recovery, they're, neither one is dispensable, that they're yeah. both additive and necessary. Uh, any comments from you, John or Doug, along those lines before we uh, dive a little bit deeper?
3: Well, I was just, you know, thinking about this Well, I started this program um, some years ago called Passages to Recovery, and it was a wilderness program for adults who were suffering from alcoholism addiction. And it, it kind of became my ballywick that I would do the family workshops at the end. So I did like two years of this, like three and a half, four days of family workshop every week, putting these damaged and beautiful, and sometimes not so beautiful, but oftentimes beautiful families back together and just going through that, you know, it was just, it was just riveting and, and devastating. And I, I thought my, you know, my, my job was a chief crier, you know, I would just weep sometimes at the stuff that would go on
2: yeah.
3: like, far from being, you know, the Freudian therapist, man, I was just, my heart was open. And at that time I didn't have, I, didn't, I don't think they meditated back then. It was really hard to deal with that. I mean, it was glorious and healing too, but it was so devastatingly painful yeah. uh, to watch what the ravages is a disease. Uh, does on families and probably you know even families that don't deal with addiction. You some kind of the practice here that you guys are doing that you're talking about would be good for all of us because we're not taught how to be good partners. We're not taught how to be good
2: <laughs> sons yes. and daughters
3: and, and and family members and and human right. beings. So
2: absolutely. So I, I'm right with you, John. And I, I also run a family intensive once a month uh, at a at a treatment center that's really a dual diagnosis. So we're dealing with really complex mental health challenges, you know, bipolar, OCD, um, addiction, uh, anxiety, depression, the whole kind of all together. So I, I, I can attest and, uh, to what you're saying in terms of the intensity of the work. Absolutely. It's, it's really moving and, uh, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's really intense, one of, the, I, one of the things that I do over the weekend when I work with families and couples is that I talk about relationship and give them some foundation because really we know so much more now about relationship than we did 10, 20, 50 years ago. And the field has really grown and there's this whole area called attachment theory that's got a lot of great research behind it. And I just want to touch on a little bit, just to give you a flavor of kind of what's happening out there in -hmm. terms of looking at adult relationships across lifetime. Mm -hmm. So let's just take, uh, let's take the biggest, probably the biggest study that's ever been done. Um, And it it was done out of Harvard. And this spans several decades um, where they looked at it. Actually, there was a book written about it called Triumphs of Experience, the Men of the Harvard Grant Study. And this spanned many decades. And one of the main conclusions of the study was that the warmth of our relationships across life have the greatest impact on life satisfaction. So that's pretty powerful when you think about it. And, and, and let me just take a little bit more sort of more general research because that was for males. But there's a, there's a psychologist out of the um, University of Utah by the name of uh, Bert Puccino. And he's um, been looking at adult relationships and the impact of good relationship health on one's general health, not just emotional, but physical. Um, And he says that um, a good relationship is the best recipe for good health and the most powerful antidote to aging. Hmm. So forget those spas. Work on your relationship, right? (laughs) But, I mean, this is just saying, believe it or not. Kind of crazy, but it's the it's the. Um, it's not
3: crazy then, at all, you know. He looks at, sense. Look
2: at uh, a couple decades of research with thousands of subjects shows that the quality of our social support predicts general mortality, as well as mortality against specific disorders like heart disease. And in terms of mental health, close relationship or or I should say quality relationship is the biggest predictor of happiness. Mm. So if if you look at that i mean this is really what the research is saying out there and how it can be so life giving you know so much so, such a big contributing factor to one's you know stability one's mental health yeah. and so in that respect if you think about what you go through in addiction And then you also think about the impact that has on your loved ones. And I'm sure, John, you can attest to this, that you probably had loved ones sometimes coming in as traumatized as the person who's recovering.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So so I think that's what we're really aiming to do with plural recovery is really look at the we, not just the addict, not just the person who, quote, should be an Al-Anon or whatever. You know, I I feel like that's kind of a pejorative way of addressing someone's struggles, but, you know, whatever they need to do for their work, both individually, like you guys are saying, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, a, you know, Uh, integral recovery as a whole like looking at the whole i'm i'm so you know uh, in in favor of that but also to realize that in looking at the whole we can't neglect this relationship piece and it's really it's really foundational because we also see that a lot of the reasons for relapse comes from relationship distress yeah and, and if,
3: if relationships are so essential to, to lifespan and happiness and health and staying sober, as in, you know, the case of this, what we're talking about here, then it's something you really got to work on. You got to cultivate it and not just yeah. expect dumb luck, you know. And for years, I was just traveling, traveling, traveling all over the world. and I had great friends and I'd leave them behind. At a certain point, I don't know, like I approached 40 or something. And I was like, wait a second, what the hell's the matter with me? I don't get to stay in touch with anybody. You know, I just keep rolling on, you know, and the one thing, new thing you never get is a a old friend. And so it takes time and cultivation and you have to work at it. And it's, it's, uh, it's really rewarding. And, you know, as Jung said, and, and I'm speaking personally, it's kind of the the neglected place that often you'll find some of the biggest breakthroughs yeah. or not yeah, the things yeah. that you feel. Yeah, I feel comfortable going to the gym and I'm more comfortable with meditating after a decade or so of doing it every day. But but the relational stuff has been more of a challenge for me and, and God will often often come through that kind of rejected element or that, that neglected yeah. quadrant and major breakthroughs. Yeah. That's, uh, that's
2: really col- beautiful, John. I, I, sorry, Doug, uh, did uh,
0: you? Yeah, Colleen, I wanted to ask relationships are such an important component and an indicator of happiness in life and health and all these wonderful things. But I wanted to ask you, what are the indicators of a quality relationship and what can we do to strengthen relationships with those in our lives now and those we may have harmed?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Doug. And I think here I really want to speak to also respond to what you said, John, and, and answer your question, Doug. I, I really appreciate your... your um, your vulnerability, yeah. you know, um, um, and, 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 and being able to talk about how we can all, I feel like we can all neglect our, our primary relationships. We get so busy, you know, it's hard to know how to work on them. You don't necessarily see the value until too late, you know, all those things. And I think we all struggle with that. And I, I do want to kind of normalize it in a way of saying that we just, we didn't know so much about relationship, you know, several, couple few decades ago and there's so much we know now about what does a healthy relationship look like how do you build a healthy relationship why is it so valuable so I just want to speak to you and also anybody else who's listening that really you know I, I try and normalize this because when I do my family program we sometimes have people who are like 80 85 that are attending and they come from a very different paradigm yeah. you know and so it's like they're doing the best they can like we all are and yeah. so I just kind of want to that out there first but the other uh sort of the answer or I want to kind of answer this in a way of um I think everybody has a different idea of maybe what works for them in terms of a good relationship so I certainly don't want to say this is the only way right. um if you have a relationship that's working it's maybe not super intimate or maybe you kind of have a good agreement in place and it's stable you know I, I I'm I'm all for whatever works. So it's not, so I just want to say that this isn't sort of, you know, a a way of saying everyone has to be this way, but let's take a look at the research again and just look at what that's saying, because there's been a lot of work on this, Doug, you know, the specific question, what is a healthy relationship look like? And um, I want to, I want to pull again from a, a, a research study that was done. That's really corroborating a lot of what we're seeing in the adult attachment literature, which is um, this was a study done out of University of Texas and they looked at what is the biggest predictor of a successful marriage five years into it and I asked this question in the intensive that I run once a month so I've gotten the answers but no one has ever answered what the answer to the this study is so so I was just wondering if the, if the listeners can pause for a minute and answer the question in your own mind, what is the biggest predictor of a successful marriage five years into it? What what do you think is, and Bob, you can't answer because you know that you know the answer to the question, but I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on that or.
3: Wow. It brings up all kinds of things. Um, Yeah. I would say respect Mm. would be big you know because wow. I did a workshop one time and the guy said he could go up, talk to a couple and within a, 2 minutes he knew it wasn't going to work because yeah. they just despised each other and and that's maybe not the clinical word that he used I can't remember contempt, it, but he said is it? contempt thank you yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It hold each other in contempt forget about it you know find yeah. somebody you don't and just stop torturing each other and and get on with your lives yeah. so he was yeah. pretty so I would say the yeah. opposite of that, you know, mutual respect is, is, is a big yes. thing. Yeah, John, I, I
0: would, I would tend respect. to agree with you yeah. there that uh, trust and mutual respect are tremendously important. And those things kind of go hand in hand. And those are also two of the domains that could be most profoundly damaged by addiction.
1: Yes. Yeah, That's
2: Good true. point. good point. I love that, Doug. Thank you. Yeah, trust and mutual respect. Absolutely. That's something that gets eroded over time when someone's really struggling with an addiction. Yeah. And in the context of a relationship, that's that's really so primary. And if you don't have that, what you have. So, so let me back up to kind of what the, and I think that's so good what you're both saying. I really am in full agreement. What I often, the answers that I often get are communication. Um, sometimes I get You know, um, uh, laughter, um, being able to enjoy things together, sex. I mean, there's, I get, I've gotten so many different answers, but really, the the, what the research bears out is the biggest predictor of a successful marriage, and this actually ties into what you both said, is emotional responsiveness. Wow. Emotional responsiveness. So let's just kind of unpack that a little and think about what does that mean? Because it sounds a little abstract, like, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Emotional responsiveness, really underneath most fights, the, the, the questions that are lingering underneath most fights is, are you there for me? Can I count on you? Mm-hmm. Do I matter to you? And am I valued by you? And if you think of like the valued and do I matter you're not going to have respect for somebody if you feel like you don't really matter to them, right? Or you feel like you can't trust them. I I think that that's going to really undermine, but if you really, if you, if the answer is yes to these questions, you can have those difficult conversations about about what happened in this latest relapse or, um, you know, issues around the in-laws or sex or money or whatever the hot topic of the day is. Really, it's kind of like this foundation underlying. You know you can count on the other person. You know they're there for you. There's this kind of emotional responsiveness that signals to the other person, you matter to me, I care about you. And, and we transmit that in thousands of ways. A lot of times nonverbal, like when I work with a couple and a family, I get so much information from their nonverbals. I actually work more off the nonverbals than I do off the content. Because the content is like, you know, that changes from day to day. But those nonverbals are really signaling something really primary that's going on. That's not being addressed.
3: Let me say one thing. First of all, this is not the this is not the one shot you have being on this program. I think we'll have to do a part two and three and four. So don't feel pressured to get through all the material that you came with because this is very rich right now and so we'll just just relax and and we'll flow into also i would say just not only your primary relationship but also all your relationships with your you know your son your father your friends everything would that would translate as also right
2: absolutely so true john I, i i thanks for that uh, highlighting that because I, I do think it's so valuable. You, you you can have really a robust relationship life without having a significant other, you know, that's, that's possible. And many people do. And I think, I think that's one of the reasons why AA is so powerful or can be so powerful for some people is that this it's really built on relationships and connections. So I think to your point, that, that's very true. Yeah.
1: I'm glad you opened up the possibility of a return, John. Just in the last 30 seconds before Colleen paused, I was thinking how value, uh, valuable it would be down the line to address the, the more the more uh, kind of uh practical applications of how you repair um ruptures or the wreckage of the past. And that's such a complicated area. So I was actually thinking, how the Sam Hill are we gonna do this in we're not. 10 more minutes? Yeah, we're oh, just not. Thank you. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> and and, uh, and we had four questions. And I don't know if you got to question one yet. So you know, uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's what it, it kind of goes around here. We're
2: taking the scenic yeah. route. Yeah. Yeah.
3: No, anyway, but but Colleen, I'm really captivated, and it's just brilliant. It's so so useful. I
1: have a thought here, gentlemen. Since we just came from preparing a previous podcast that centered around forgiveness practice, and in fact, John, you provided kind of the transition in that conversation with Doug and you and I. Uh, uh, around uh, relationship and forgiveness in the context of relationship. For example, we made a distinction there between forgiveness in a relationship and reconciliation, that there are times that we might forgive somebody for wrongs uh, uh, that we've committed or, or made committed to us and not reconcile, not choose to be in a relationship to them. I wonder if you'd be willing to at least touch on topics of forgiveness as they come up for you and your work. I think that will be of interest to our listeners because they will just have listened in the previous podcast to a whole uh, piece on forgiveness. Any thoughts yeah. on that?
2: Well, um, so you're talking about forgiveness when, let's say, you're in a relationship where there's a lot of issues and kind of, let's say, just say wreckage for from yeah. the from the addiction, yeah,
1: that's specifically what we were looking at. In fact. Okay,
2: and then did you did you cover in any of your podcasts anything about shame or?
1: But we actually talked a fair bit about that previously. Okay, but, but I don't see a reason why you shouldn't bring that because you're coming in from a different focus than than the three of think, us for sure. Yeah, I just
2: wanted to kind of see what there was a foundation for. So, so I think forgiveness is such an important piece, and oftentimes people think of it as like, okay, I'm going to make it an amends, and then and then kind of. like... I'm done, <laughs> you know, like I'm in Did that and out. One. <laughs> You know, like I'm, I'm getting in, I'm saying I'm sorry, and now I've done it, it's done, it's over. But really, what we see, what's really much more helpful is for the relationship, for the repair to be significant enough that it gets to the heart of the matter. And if you just have a kind of a, a cursory, you know, sorry, um, the other person, doesn't have enough to kind of grab onto to really trust that it's going to be different or feel like they can trust that even this apology is real. And so we, we often will kind of have repair be in stages and there's important things that need to happen. Um, but one of the things that can block repair, this is why I was checking out if you guys have talked much about shame, um, actually you said that in the beginning that you did guys, you did cover that. Sorry. <laughs> um, is that shame blocks the ability to, to feel remorse or to empathize. Mm-hmm. So if I feel ashamed about what I did, I don't want to, I don't want to admit that to you. I don't want to, I don't want to bear my soul. I feel so bad inside. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I can just think of, you know, curse words that come up where I feel like a piece of, you know, like this is what actually I was just working with a client this week that was saying that this client feels so bad, so bad that how can he bear to say this to his significant other who he wants to look at him with love in her eyes. Right. And how is he going to open up and say this? I think that's unbearably painful. So if you haven't done that kind of inner work or work around your own shame and come to, into some kind of relationship with that, I think it's going to be really hard to have a robust repair with your significant other or with a friend or whoever it is that you need to repair with. So so that's I, one. Let me
1: ask you, let me ask a question about that. And invite you, Doug and John also just, um, I, I like very much what you're talking about. And I, I it, um, is, is, is this what you're suggesting is that, that I must do preparatory work around shame, along the idea of what we just did in the previous podcast around forgiveness practice, which is an interior practice. Must I do that before I can come to others, uh, especially those that are uh, closest to me to, to, uh, to ask for forgiveness? Must I do that ahead of time? Or how does that all work out kind of in the sequence of time?
2: Well, I think what I would say is you have a much better chance for a good repair if you do it. Um, And so sometimes you don't even know the shame's there until you start having to talk about something. And then it can come up in ways, we often feel it in our body and we might Mm -hmm. not be aware we're even feeling shame. Mm -hmm. And if it's very much like subcortical, the shame, in other words, it's not really we're not totally aware that it's there. What often I'll see in the in a, in a session when I'm working with somebody is they become very blaming and reactive. They start to get defensive and they start kind of getting into a huff and they'll be like, yeah, but you did this. Or they start to kind of, instead of the repair, what started out as a repair turns into a sort of defensiveness or blame. And that's when it's just too unbearable for them to be able to sit with and be with reality of what happened and what they did. And so if you can't be with the reality yourself, how can you express that to another? Yeah. yeah?
3: And, and sometimes I, I guess that's why treatment going away, you know, someplace away from your family and stuff. So you can actually do some of this work and hopefully people are working on it. But the thing I, we used to do, we developed this thing called the four R's. So you'd have the two family members or, you know, a couple children, whoever that was sit in front of each other, you know, about, six inches, knees apart. And, just, and they prepared this thing. And the first one was resentments. These are things I resent against you. Okay. And so say, Bob, you're my father. I'd say, dad, I really resent that you were just not there when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Okay. You were just not there. And the the man, that, all you get to say is son, I hear you say that you resent that I was not there when you were growing up. Do you feel, did I get it? Yeah. So that you can't do, you can't do what I hear you say, you know, you can't do any of these stuff. You has a straight back, maintain eye contact and go through this stuff. Excruciatingly powerful. Mm-hmm. And then it would be, uh, uh, respects would be the next R. And I say, dad, I really respect that you busted your ass, uh, when I was growing up so we could have this wonderful house and I could go to Harvard or whatever, you know, all you provided for us. And then the father would I'm back. And then, then, then res- there was respects, resentments, Regrets And regrets are things that I did to you, Dad. And, Dad, I really regret that I was such an insufferable dickhead, uh, you know, during high school towards you, you know. And Dad would say, uh, son, I hear you say you regret that you were such an insufferable dickhead when you were in high school, you know. And then the last part is requests. And, Dad, in the future going forth, I, I really request, it's not a demand, but I request that we spend more time together because I miss you. And the dad would, you know, at that point, everybody in the room's losing their shit, stuff, right? <laughs> it's like, and and then the families get to reflect back on the other families because they all have, you know, we're not alone in this. We have similar issues and everything. So that was one way that we that we worked with, uh, uh, you know, just as kind of a clinical thing that we developed over the years that was very powerful. Do
1: you have any thoughts about that? Any responses to
2: that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, it's it sounds like it i i do understand how the power of that kind of work we have a list work as well in our our intensive too yeah that we do And we kind of back it up with actually family work and family sessions after that because there's I think that when you open that kind of stuff up there's so much there right John which (sighs) which test to the power of those kind of experiences there's so much there and sometimes the family needs some support and some help or the couple in kind of understanding unpacking that. And that their old strategies for relating are maybe getting outmoded and they need a lot of help kind of finding new ways to connect. And be like
3: to- ongoing practices. Like what I'm talking about can be a very powerful state experience. It clears a lot of stuff up. It's huge opening. It's yeah. like finding God in your father or your son or something like that. Yeah. But then if you don't have, you know,
2: exactly work to yeah. do
3: afterwards, it just. a a, a nice memory like
2: we can still talk like that yeah absolutely john i really agree with you it comes back
0: to the emotional responsiveness that you were talking about earlier this this kind of work the the four r's and working with it and the therapeutic work that you're doing requires a deep willingness to be vulnerable and yeah. it's hard to get there unless you have this foundation of knowing that I matter and knowing that I'm safe to express these things. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Doug. I really appreciate how you're um, organizing them. This material and really getting it. I think you, if you really understand why that emotional responsiveness is so key and such a kind of like, if you don't have that, you know, it's very hard to work through sort of complex difficulties and issues together.
3: And, and Colleen, is just kind of a, a, a you know a, a big generalization. Do you find that it's, it's harder for males generally to do the kind of learning to be vulnerable like that? Because we're taught to be invulnerable and tough and get the job done. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm sorry yeah. you have feelings, but I got to go to work, you know, and, and yeah, I, you know, right. I got to march well, I, off to I, war, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely, John. I, I think that's a good point. And I definitely think that's true. I, I think that in general, this is a general general statement, sure. but in general, Broadly, yeah. we are socialized not to express vulnerability, because if you express vulnerability, what's going to happen? You're going to get your ass kicked or you're going to get made fun of, right? Yep. And so you know you're really taught to kind of suck it up, and that's that. And so males generally have, if of course males have the whole bandwidth of feelings the same as females do, but oftentimes those feelings, those more tender or vulnerable feelings, they end up getting expressed in secondary what we would call secondary emotions like anger so if I'm feeling shame or I'm feeling bad about myself I'm going to strike out because because anger shores me up makes me feel strong and powerful whereas when I feel vulnerable I feel weak and I feel crappy and I feel like I'm Kind of falling apart over here so i'm gonna i'm gonna shore myself up and i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you what it's all about or you know what I mean? Like there's a there's a different so it takes a while sometimes to get underneath the anger to deal with it look at the anger but then kind of unpack the anger to see what's underneath there and w- what what's so valuable is is what i think a lot of my, my clients come to realize is that showing vulnerability is actually a strength and is actually it takes a lot of courage and you've got to be really careful who you do it with so it's not like something you do just you're not going to do it when you're out at work and you've got to show up in a certain way or you're you know you're in the army you're not going to show it in those in those avenues so i, I don't try and take away those coping mechanisms or ability to be out in the world as a male because those are valuable and important but can we can we amplify that a little bit and get a little more into the you know uh, into the spectrum and be able to also have vulnerable feelings because the actually, when the other person feels that you have remorse, that you do feel sorry for what you did, that you feel really bad about it. It sends the signal to them that, they, that, they, that they really get how this felt to you and they don't want this to happen and they don't want to do it again. And they feel so bad Then the other person starts to feel like, wow, they really do get it. Okay, maybe I don't have to be so concerned. Maybe I can start letting my guard down and be able to start trusting this person. But that takes a vulnerable conversation. And I think when you're in early recovery, you know, owing to pause and owing to just trying to kind of biologically keep it together, I think those deeper conversations are sometimes more limited And so early recovery work with a couple or a family will look different than the later recovery work.
3: You know, maybe we should say the masculine and feminine, you know, because we have, you know, we have gay couples too, you know, but there's usually in each relationship, there's one that takes the masculine pole, whether it's men or women or whatever mix thereof that take that. And, you know, one of the annoying things that the masculine tends to do, we, we tend to try to solve problems. So, you know, you come to me and say, you know, God, I'm just really hurting. I feel so, you know, alienated to school and I just feel like, okay, well, what you really need to do, uh, God damn it. No, I don't want to (laughs) hear some solution. I figured all that out myself. What I want, I want to be heard. Okay. I just want you to know that you're opening your heart and you can understand what I'm going through. And that's, that's a, that's a hard one for men because we don't want to feel their feelings. And instead of just yelling or getting angry, we become a problem solvers and we just jump in and it can be really annoying. Yeah, very true. Very true. <laughs> yeah, therapists have to learn to stop doing that, you know, yeah.
2: you
3: know, male therapists, masculine therapists anyway.
2: Well, yeah, and I think it comes, it definitely, like you say, John, it comes from both sides. I'm actually working with a family right now where the dynamic is the mother carries very much kind of the, she's sort of, you know, out of the world and in high pressure job and the father's more at home caretaking. So we see, and of course they work with gay, lesbian couples. And so we see all kinds of different, uh permutations but it it, i think that in general our society and i think also with parents a lot too tend to because we see a lot of people in my clinic with failure to launch so so teens or young adults in their late teens early 20s even into their 30s that aren't able to they're struggling out in the world and they need help or support they're not able to make it and we often have these families where the parent is uh, very type A or high powered and very successful and they really want the best for their child, adult child, and they they mean well, um, but they're very much in that kind of how can we make this person successful? How can we help this child to be successful? I'm doing everything I can. And they kind of forget or it doesn't, or maybe they never learned that emotional responsiveness piece to kind of just be able to be with their um, their, their child, wherever they're at, you know, and not have to try and jump out of it. I think that's an uncomfortable thing for, for all of us to see someone we really care about and love struggle and maybe be in a lot of pain. I think that's a really tough thing to sit with and be with. And it takes a kind of a capacity to be able to do that. And that,
3: that can be really hard, you know? And, and, and part of very... your, your work. I was there, both of you guys work as, as working as therapists is to breathe that auxiliary ego sometimes and say, no, you don't need to rescue your son right now. He, yeah. He's going to be able to work this out, but you just need to know that you really feel and understand what he's going through. And that's just like, Oh God, that's hard when you spend a lifetime doing something totally different, you know, to learning those lessons. It takes time, you know, it takes
1: yes. practice. Doug, you were going to make a comment.
0: Yeah, what you were just talking about speaks very deeply to me, too, because I was one of those who had sort of a failure to launch for a while. I was very much struggling with my addiction at the time, uh, while my father very much wanted me to go out and and succeed, and it occurs to me as you're speaking, and this this thought has occurred to me before, but came in very clearly as you were just discussing that, that there is probably a lot of self-blame in that, too, and a lot of... uh, anger directed inward and what could I have done differently and how is this my fault? And seeing that I empathize and understand it in a very different way, which I appreciate very much getting from you. So thank you.
2: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Doug. That's really, uh, really meaningful to me because one of the things that's been that I've really um, kind of rallied around in my, this intensive that I, that I run, at this clinic is time and time again, the family members would come in. There's like a fever pitch of anxiety leading up to this weekend for both the clients and also the family members. And there's just so much tension. And oftentimes what gets missed is the family members come in and they, I have this little sheet where they kind of write out what is your, what is that negative pattern you get stuck in with your loved one? And at the very end of the sheet, it says, what is your biggest fear? And I have a bunch of like things to choose from, or they can put their own thing in there. And one of the things that I have in there is that I failed as a parent. yeah, that I failed as a spouse that I failed. <clears> and that is really so um, deep in there and such a, and they'll they'll just weep. We we talk about this about how they're just so afraid that they have failed, and or that and they're also afraid that they're going to get blamed and called out. And I let them know that's not the that's not the uh, the, uh, the objective of the weekend at all. It's really to understand that you're struggling, you know. So, and I think it's just that you're able to have a deep kind of. Um, understanding of of their pain as well and maybe how that pain got showed up in misguided ways you know trying to fix it or 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 forcing forcing something maybe on you i I don't know but um but that you're able to really empathize with god they are They really were trying and maybe they're really feeling bad themselves like they failed Uh, i think that's such a powerful insight
3: yeah, You know, and each child is so individual. We're so bloody complex, you know, so we just had one size fits all. This is how you raise a healthy child. Obviously, there has to be certain things. Yeah, you don't abuse them, you give them love, support, everything, but different. Some kids need to be pushed. Some kids need to be reeled in. Some kids need to be held. Some need to be let go. And it's like, Man, the brother's doing so well. We did everything just the same. And this kid, you know, he's he's in drug rehab for the third time, and he flunked out of ninth grade. You know, so so each each, there's just so much complexity here. And as a therapist, we
1: don't know. Yeah, this is so rich, John. You talk about the complexity of the human condition and relationships are. Uh, exponentially more complex than even working with an individual. I suggest that we wind down this discussion. It's midstream; we're not nearly completed. I don't think. I think we just put
3: our toes in the in the moist sand on one side of the the river here. So I think we have a lot of a uh, lot lot to go crossing that this, I, this uh, body one water. Of the
1: pieces that Colleen uh, was prepared to discuss, and we might do this in a future discussion, would be to look at how all what we've been talking about in terms of. Uh, recovering in the context of relationships, how that might inform meditation practice, how that that might inform shadow work, and so on. There's all kinds of applications, much less more specifics about actual repair work itself that we can revisit. Uh, On behalf of Doug and John Dupuis and myself and Integral Recovery, we really thank you, Colleen, for all your contributions today. Yeah, and Colleen, you're our first guest on the journey of Integral Recovery. So it's
3: like, oh, we'll have to do some more of this. What a good idea. You know, <laughs> so, no, re- we just barely touched the subject and it, it was really brilliant really moving to me. I mean, you yeah. know, you start thinking about this stuff. Thank
2: you. Thank yeah. you for your gut, for your sharing from, from your heart. It really, really means a lot to me. I, I, I think, I think that's the reason I do this work is just, it, you know, to see see people, so, you know, lights go on or or see connections being made, and I, that's so meaningful to me, and also informative for me in my own work. You know, my own inner work. I, I just find it really rich because I learn from I learn from you, I learn from you, I, I learn from my clients, and uh, so yeah. And it's really a pleasure to be here with you. So nice to meet you, Doug, and great to see you again, John. <laughs> Pleasure.
1: More to follow with Colleen and more to follow with the Journal of Integral Recovery Podcast. Please stay tuned in. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll see you next week. Okay. God bless.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit IntegralRecoveryInstitute.com slash iAwake for the best meditation tracks to support your daily recovery practice. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.